Hello, and welcome to Eric Likes Animals, the podcast that talks about environmental news stories happening around the world, along with a featured species every episode. I'm Eric Mahan. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. And a very special day it is because the podcast has officially turned one year old. And within this year, the podcast has created 39 episodes full of amazing animals and stories. And I hope you guys enjoyed it at least as much as I enjoyed creating the podcast. Also, throughout the year, we had about 1,360 downloads and has been at least heard on every continent minus Antarctica. Who knows? Maybe one day a penguin will give it a listen. And on those continents, by the way, it has been listened to a grand total of 31 countries and or territories. So thank you guys so much for hanging out with me and listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. And I simply can't wait to see what the second year will bring. But enough about the future. Let's look back to the present and on to this podcast episode. And let's get started with some environmental news. The chief minister of the Indian state of Assam has had some very exciting news to share about 2022. The minister said recently that in his state there had had been zero rhinos poached in India's state parks, which is something that has not been heard since 1977. This all started in May 2021 when the chief minister of Assam set out to end poaching in the state's protected areas. And now, only a short 20 months later, he has shown some major first steps with the state's first full year of zero loss of rhinos to poaching. The area the minister oversees does make up the vast majority of greater one-horned rhinos, especially in India, with about 2,895 estimated to live there. So, for the minister, there was a lot of pressure to get this right. And luckily, he came out swinging. The minister created a task force to protect the rhinos. First steps, creating a database. One that had all the convicted past rhino poachers on it along with how and where they take the rhinos. The task force also monitored the phones of the convicted poachers and even had local fishermen and villagers become informants on these people. As for things the task force did in the parks themselves, the rhinos became as well guarded as any president. Highly trained police commandos patrolled the park, equipped with modern-day tech including things like night vision and drones to help patrol the park, even in the dead of night. They also made sure to increase the number of people on patrol on full moon nights, since this is a popular period for poachers to be out hunting rhinos. They even went so far as to have 24-7 patrols near the rhinos during the monsoon season of 2022, which drove the rhinos to higher grounds and may have been much easier targets for any poachers in the area if it weren't for the protection of the police commandos. Other colleagues of the minister have even made statements such as the program being so effective that arrests on poachers are now being measured weekly rather than monthly, like it was before. The idea is that soon the pressure of the police presence would swing the scales in favor of the rhinos, and that poachers no longer will see it worth the risk of fines and jail time for a very little chance of even getting a rhino, thus eliminating poaching together, which will help keep our chubby little unicorns nice and safe in their forest. Next up, we have the Goffin's cockatoo, which is being called the handyman of the bird world. Before we begin with this article, let's talk about intelligence. 
For when we look at animals and their intelligence, there are many different levels or forms of intelligence. For instance, it's one thing to be able to use a tool. It's another to be able to use a tool to get or make a tool. A great example of this is it's a higher form of intelligence for a human to carve a stick to make a spear to hunt versus a human just beating things with a stick. He found to hunt. Both are tools, but carving the stick first is a sign of a higher form of thinking. So many animal behaviorists always like to test these sort of problems out, especially when from observing wild animals that have shown signs of higher thinking of using tools or making tools. Because the scientists wish to know, was this simply by accident or was there actually a train of thought for this? For example, if your dog accidentally steps on the remote and turns on the TV and is watching that geo, was it by accident or did that dog truly know how to turn on the TV? And one such animal in the wild of showing higher thinking was that of the Goffin's cockatoo, where in the wild they will manufacture three different types of cutlery tools to help them extract seeds from tropical fruits. So the researchers developed a puzzle box for these cockatoos, all of which if they can figure out the puzzle would earn them a tasty cashew. The box itself was clear so they could see the cashew, but the experiment was designed so that the only way for the cockatoo would be able to get its reward was for them to first use a short rigid stick to break through a membrane inside the box and then having to switch over to a longer softer stick to be able to reach the cashew. With the experiment of the 10 cockatoos, 7 figured out they needed to use both tools on their first try and six birds completed nine consecutive trials across three consecutive days of the experiment. So they figured it out. Well, that's not enough to prove something at all. So phase two, five of the birds were picked at random to move on to a second experiment, which had a variety of boxes that either needed one or two tools, as well as needing either the soft or rigid one first. But out of 150 attempts of the second experiment, 128 times, the birds always used the correct tools first. So they knew by looking at the puzzle right away what sort of tool was required for this job and if it required two tools, which one was needed first. But that's still not enough. So on to a third experiment. The last experiment, five were picked again at random, but this time the box was placed away from the tools on a platform meaning the birds had to fly with tools to the box. Once again, the boxes were random and either one or two tools were required. From that experiment, three birds always brought two tools with them to the box. And two, when faced with a box that only required one tool, only carried one over. The researchers think the reason for this difference was the birds who always brought two tools, even if they didn't need both, simply thought better to be prepared and have it and not need it, especially if you are strong enough to carry both tools together. Because what's the harm? After all, work smarter, not harder. Then finally, a very tiny, very old mouse has just set a record. A Pacific pocket mouse named Pat Pocketed, named after Sir Patrick Stewart, just set a record for the oldest living mouse in captivity. Now, normally animals in the wild die much earlier than the ones in captivity due to no health care. And when you get old in the wild, you slow down, which means you normally can't feed yourself as well or might 
more likely you get eaten because, well, you're slow. Now, Pat Pocketed was born July 14th, 2023, and set the record of being the oldest mouse under human care at 9 years and 209 days. Pat was born at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Facility as part of their conservation breeding program to help out the remaining three small wild populations of the Pacific pocket mice. The Pacific pocket mouse, by the way, is the smallest species of mouse in North America. Pat pocketed, for example, only weighs about the same as three pennies. Yet its small size of being able to fit in your pocket is not what gives these creatures their name. Pocket mice have these specialized cheek pockets, which help store seeds and nesting materials when the mice are on the move. But please don't let their small size fool you. They are a major part of the ecosystem in helping with seed dispersal and encouraging plant growth through digging. So thankfully, that means having a great candidate like Pat Pocketed here in the breeding program means he's passing along his long life genes, which can help make sure that the individuals that do head back out into the wild from the conservation breeding program go where very few have gone before off the endangered species list. And that is your environmental news. Did you know, by the way, speaking of the environment, that it has its own maid service? Now, you may have known about vultures already, but there are far more members of Mother Nature's Maid Service helping out. And today we're going to be talking about a very important member of that crew, the American Burying Beetle. Now, the American Burying Beetle is the largest member of the carrion beetle family, a family known for eating and using carrion, aka dead animals, for either food or reproduction purposes. The American burying beetle is calling home to about six states in the United States, them being Arkansas, Kansas, Massachusetts, Nebraska, Ohio, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, South Dakota, and Texas. The habitat of this beetle is pretty widespread, being found in prairies, open woodlands, scrublands, and forest edge. The three important factors, however, that seem to decide within these areas if they would be found there or not are the areas need to have a very low or no human presence, good soil for them to bury their food, and, well, plenty of dead things for them as well. The beetles themselves are about 2 inches in length, and they weigh about 1.7 to 10.5 ounces or 48 to 297 grams. They also can live for about a year. The American burying beetles are shiny black and orange in color. They are easily identified by the orange spots on their wing covers. However, that is a common look for other burying beetles. But the main thing that separates them in looks besides their size is the large orange spots on the hard shell-like covering just behind their head, which is something not found in other carrion beetles. The American burying beetle has also an orange spot on its head between the eyes along with each antenna having a large orange segment that forms kind of a ball at the tip of their antennas. Those antennas, by the way, are also full of specialized organs at the tip that can detect dead animals. The dead animals can be picked up by these antennas even after just simply dying only a couple hours before. And the antennas can pick up a dead animal sent from about two miles away. The burying beetle have been known to actually fly 18 miles in a single night just in search for some food. So with those statistics, you may be surprised that it would be as difficult to find dead things because they're not really that picky. They will eat dead animals, including birds, fish, mammals, and really any other organism. 
The American burring beetle are really like little nighttime elves that help clean up the day's mess out in the wilderness. And especially so that they are nocturnal, so they're going out at night looking for food. And when they do find some, they are not really the most sharing type. After flying to these tasty meals, they start eating and they might not always finish it. And good carcasses are kind of hard to find sometimes. So when they are done, they will actually bury it for later so that other beetles and scavengers can't pick it off. Hence the burying portion in their name. Luckily, they don't always have to bury their food alone. But normally in that case, it's not because they want to share it's because that carcass specifically is not for eating it's for breeding breeding happens in the summer months for the adult american burying beetle reproductive activity for the american burying beetle usually begins in may or june once nighttime temperatures in the general area approach 59 degrees fahrenheit consistently and they normally stop breeding around mid-august Immediately upon emerging from their winter hibernation, American burying beetles begin searching for a mate in a properly sized carcass for reproduction. Males will try and find a good sized carcass, and if he gets there and no female is there, he will actually send out a pheromone to try and bring one in. However, that normally does bring in multiple females and multiple males. And like I said, they're not really about sharing. So the males and females will start actually battling each other over the carcass until only the strongest male and female are left. Then the new couple will start to strip the carcass of feathers, fur, scales, really whatever's on this carcass, and then proceed to roll up the carcass into a tiny ball. After that, the real fun begins. The couple will then spread anal and oral fluids all over the carcass to preserve it and make it last. Then they will lay their 10 to 30 eggs in a chamber near the carcass and when the larvae emerge in a little while later, they can use that little ball of dead meat as a shelter and food. The adult beetles, however, will stay by after laying the eggs and end up watching over the larvae. When the larvae first emerge, the parents will actually regurgitate food down to the larvae till they are big enough to start feeding on the carcass themselves. Very loving parents. Then, the larva will feed on the carcass for a couple of weeks. Now, during that time, the parents will still stay around, and they will actually take care of the carcass ball, all the while to ensure their children always have some food. The parents end up removing fungus that may start to grow on the ball and will regularly apply the antibacterial secretions of oral and anal fluids to make sure their rotting carcass actually doesn't rot away and leave their kids without food. Then, when the larva get big enough, they will pupate, and after a month or so, the pupates will hatch into full-blown adult burying beetles, ready to start cleaning up whatever dead animals they can find. Then, normally around early fall, the American burying beetle will start to bury themselves and, well, hibernate over winter, and will emerge once spring comes around. And for all the offspring of the last year, they will now take the place of their parents the year before and help start cleaning up the woods and breeding. Because don't forget, the burying beetle only lives for about a year. So each year is a different generation of beetles taking care of the woods carcasses, which helps keep fly populations and ant populations down and in check by taking out carcasses before flies and ants can even get a chance to get to them. The beetles also help prevent disease for wildlife and humans by taking care of carcasses and of course by eating the carcasses and, well, pooping, they help fertilize the forest floor. 
The beetles are also a very tasty snack for a variety of animals that include, but not limited to, skunks, crows, box turtles, raccoons, and yes, even coyotes. Unfortunately, even though it's part of the circle of life, it really is sad for even one of these beetles to become a snack to these predators right now. Because unfortunately, the American burying beetle, as important as it is for us and the ecosystem, is really not doing very well. The IUCN Red List has them listed as critically endangered with a population trend currently unspecific. So they're not really positive in which direction right now the population is going. The American burying beetle are currently found in a small population in about six states, but used to be found in 35 states and parts of Canada. The population we currently have grew from just one known population at the time of its listing in 1989 to become the six native and introduced populations we have today. The reason for the beetle's decline is a mix of things. The first, destruction of habitat for oil and gas production, as well as just habitat loss for basic human growth. The habitat destruction has unfortunately led to more than just basic loss of habitat and places for them to live. Due to humans and our bad habit of not taking care of even our own areas, we're leaving litter and other things lying around in our cities and towns. And animals like raccoons, foxes, possums, skunks, and crows have had population increases and have gotten footholds in some areas that they would naturally not have as good of a spot in. Giving these animals a upper hand at getting to and eating carcasses before the beetles ever get a chance to. Meaning not only do they have less habitat, they also have less chances to eat in that habitat. Another problem with the human destruction of the habitat is one we did talk about last time with the tawny frog mouse, and that is light pollution. However, unlike the tawnies who were getting hit by cars by following the insects into the artificial car headlights, the American burying beetles are being killed because of just the lights themselves. Being a nocturnal insect, they use the moon to migrate. So artificial lights throw them off in migration and movement, as well as the artificial lights triggering their drive to follow the moon to a point they will actually end up starving themselves from being so focused on flying towards the light and never really getting there or the light's not moving like it's naturally supposed to. And of course, the light not turning off because the moon's not up all night long. So yeah, they're basically starving themselves because of this drive. So what can we do about it? So obviously, habitat destruction is one we pretty much have beaten in the bush multiple times about. So yeah, sharing the planet with all others that call it home, super important. As for the wildlife who do so well in human areas, developing better, cleaner practices to prevent wildlife from being able to feed on human garbage and trash is really the best solution. Anti-wildlife trash cans and dumpsters do exist and used in more rural areas, but Implementing these in towns and cities to stop the wildlife from getting into cans can make a very big deal. Also, clean up the cities. Many European countries take a little more pride in their cities to a point of having people that go around cleaning up litter and trash to keep their cities clean. And honestly, there are some cities over there that even in their most major of cities, you barely see very little trash around. Whereas if you go to New York, there's some roadways where there's a quite a big pile heaping of trash around. But having this clean city program would provide jobs and give people cleaner cities to, well, live in. And wouldn't that be nice? But simply having people pick up litter is more 
trying to fix a problem, but not really the cause. And that is the American culture on litter. Now, over in some European cities, it's a different culture. And the idea of throwing trash, for example, out your car window would be shocking and appalling to see. Part of it is getting people to care, yes, but also probably helps that fines for littering are a little bit steeper and more enforced over there. It's such a big culture shock to see people littering that they'll actually call each other out on it because, well, it's gross. In New York City, for reference, first offense of littering can be $250 for a first conviction. But let's be real, it's not really enforced all the time. I have seen cops behind people throwing all kinds of stuff out their windows with no stops or fines written for them. In Berlin, for example, however, it's about 250 euros or 266 US dollars, which is about the same as us, but they will fine for a piece of gum, a cigarette butt, and even someone who doesn't pick up their own dog's poop, which I know many of you would probably like that last part a lot. Now, all of this can help encourage people to, well, take a little more pride and also stop littering. That's a big one. And by stop littering, those animals like raccoons and possums and foxes won't have as big of a hold in the areas and give the burrowing beetle a chance to, well, get to the carcasses first. As for the lights, it's very much like the tawny frog mouth, like we said last time. But if you didn't hear that one, basically the idea there is using no bug lights that cut out blue lights, which is a major part of what attracts bugs to these artificial lights. So, That, as well as turning off lights outside that don't need to be on, or getting motion sensor lights that turn off after a short bit instead of staying on all night long, can drastically decrease the amount of insects being attracted to the light and basically starving themselves. Because all of these things can really help out our little wilderness cleaners. Because luckily for us, though, we also have the added help of many accredited zoos involved with helping out these beetles. Places like St. Louis, Cincinnati, and a couple other accredited zoos have captive breeding programs where they breed the beetles in captivity and then release the young in designated areas to help support wild populations and help increase their size a little quicker. Which is great because, let's be honest, many of us struggle to clean our own homes on a regular basis. And the last thing we need is the added responsibility of starting to help out with Mother Nature's cleaning crew. Which can be a real thing because do you really want a bunch of dead bodies lying everywhere that help spread disease and increase flies? Hmm? Well, luckily for us right now, Mother Nature doesn't need us to pitch in because they have one of their star employees, the American Burring Beetle, on the job. And that's the show. Thank you guys so much for joining me today and hearing about the American Burring Beetle. I hope you enjoyed hearing about them and have a new appreciation for what they do to keep the wilderness clean and safe. As always, make sure to check me out on my social media pages for some bonus content. You can check me out at either Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. As well as if you ever need to, you can always email me at ericlikesanimals at gmail.com. Links and information will be provided below in the episode footer. Now, that's it. That's the one-year anniversary episode. Done. I started this podcast talking about a cool snail that had an iron shell and basically lived in the ocean on a volcano, so it only seemed right for me for my one-year anniversary to talk about another crazy invertebrate, a beetle that makes weird dead meat nurseries for its young. If you haven't guessed yet, 
I do like the weird, unheard of animals to talk a lot about on this show. Can't wait to figure out what I'm going to talk to you guys about next time. But until then, thank you for listening and thank you for making the first year so great. I can't wait for you guys to come join me again on the next episode. Until then, see you next time.